Welcome back to The Compass, the podcast ministry of Calvary Baptist Church of Fayetteville, Arkansas. We're thrilled that you've chosen to download and listen as we continue studying about the life of David. On today's podcast, Pastor Kirk will be looking at Psalm 19 as we study more about the future king, David. If you're looking for a church home, a place to connect with other believers, if you want to serve and to worship and to study, we invite you to Calvary. Calvary meets for worship on Sunday mornings at 10.30 a.m. We'd love to spend some time getting to know you better. If you have any questions about the church, you can contact us at info at calvaryfayville.com or call us at 479-442-4634. We're also on Facebook, Instagram, and even Twitter. We'd love to to share some information about the church, and you can find that also at uh, calvaryfayetteville.com. Again, we're listening to Pastor Kirk as he shares about Psalm 19, David and his God. Let's listen together. Psalm 19, David and his God. We are in a study of the life of David And we record or we find recorded in Scripture his story in the book of Samuel, first and second, in the book of Chronicles also. Uh, But to really understand the life of David, we have to look beyond the story or the storyline of David and look to the book of Psalms. You can't really understand David without reading and gaining insight from some of the Psalms. You see, he was responsible for writing, or at least collecting, the first 73 Psalms of the 150 Psalms in Scripture. And so often you'll find the uh, superscript at the top of a Psalm, a Psalm of David. And Psalm 19 is one of those. And we gain keen insight uh, into not just the storyline of David from Samuel, but also the heart, the emotion, the theology that undergirds and gives deeper meaning to the storyline. And we gain this from the collection of Psalms. Some of the Psalms, Psalm 51, Psalm 57, Psalm 63, and maybe some others, we know specifically where they fit into the storyline. Other Psalms we know that David wrote, but we're not sure exactly when or under what circumstances that he wrote them. And these others often give us uh, some much-needed insight into this servant. Now, A.W. Tozer the well-known pastor and author once wrote these words, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What we think, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. It's not our occupation. It's not our education. 
It's not our achievements. It's not our recognition. The most important thing about us is not all of that other stuff that identifies us in the eyes of the world. The most important thing about us is what we think, what comes into our minds when we think about God. Now what Tozer was saying to us is this. What's most important of all is how we understand and perceive God. You see, idolatry can take a variety of forms. Obviously, as we find in the Old Testament, there were pagan people, Canaanite people, who had carved and engraved images that they set up as images of their gods, and they worshiped those idols. They were guilty of idolatry. It's why God told his people to drive those people out, lest you begin to worship their gods. And oftentimes, the Israelites did. We also are guilty of idolatry today. You don't carve idols to worship, neither do I. But we can be guilty of idolatry when we give undue allegiance and attention and affection to anything besides God. What do you give your time and your attention to? What is most precious to you? What is most important to you in life? What do you give your allegiance to your affection to, your attention to, above God. That person or endeavor or activity can make an idolater out of you and me. But it's not just what do we give our time, attention, and affection to above God. Understand this, and this is maybe the most dangerous of all, and this is what I'm getting to going back to Tozer's quote. If you have a wrong or inaccurate perception of God, if you have made God into something that he is not, if you misperceive or misunderstand what the Bible teaches about God, and you worship that perception of God, then you are guilty of idolatry also. So what do you think of? What comes to mind when you think of God? If it's inaccurate, then it leads you into idolatry. Now, I don't want to get on a soapbox this morning. This is not in my notes. But let me give you an example anyway. I can't contain myself. I know that many of you, as I was when I initially saw the commercials on TV that's put out by some people, and it's under the theme and the heading of He Gets Us. You've seen them, haven't you? He Gets Us. 
And I know that you, probably like me, initially, initially, your first thought was, well, it is good to see something that turns people's attention to Jesus Christ on TV, even on the Super Bowl. He gets us. But beloved, understand this. If you look and you watch, and more than that, if you think closely about what you see on those commercials, we are the central theme, not God. Not only that, but it makes Jesus, in one of those commercials, a refugee. Jesus was never a refugee. Never. It makes Jesus and shows Jesus on the most recent washing the feet of people in all kinds of context. Now, Jesus came to be the Savior of people of all nationalities, all races, all ethnic groups, absolutely. But that commercial makes Jesus a... Um, it, more of a social reformer than a savior. They spent millions of dollars to show Jesus as the servant, but never showing Jesus as a suffering savior. Such an opportunity missed. But it also leaves impressions about Jesus, the refugee, the servant, that causes people, if they take it all seriously, to worship Jesus inaccurately, to misperceive him, to not see him for who he really is. It leads to idolatry. Tozer went on to say, after saying that what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us, he went on to say this, the history of mankind will probably show that no people has ever risen above its religion. And man's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. Worship is pure or base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. The greatest question before the church is always God himself. How do you see him? How do you understand him? We tend, now listen, we tend by a secret law of the soul. By a secret law of the soul, we tend to move toward our mental image of God. This is true not only of the individual Christian, but of the company of Christians that composes the church. Always, always, the most revealing thing about the church is her idea of God. So, I return to the point, dear church family, to the question, 
How do we think? What comes to mind when we think of God? We're in Psalm 19. We're going to read and hear how David thought of God. It will define his worship and ours. It will give direction and meaning to our ministry. David's words in Psalm 19 will help us understand that question. This psalm, Psalm 19, has been called a poetic and theological masterpiece. It's been one of my favorites and contains, if I could ever say that I have a life verse, then this psalm contains it. It begins at the top with the superscript to the choir master, a psalm of David. Now keep in mind what that means is this psalm was intended by David to be sung. We don't sing it today, perhaps because no one that I'm aware of has ever put it to melody that we know. But they knew in David's day how to sing this. And understand that Jesus, being a Jewish uh, young man, a child growing up in a Jewish household that read the scriptures and that sang the scriptures, here would be Jesus a thousand years after David wrote this psalm. Here is going to be Jesus who is the author of this psalm, who is ultimately the object and the person of this psalm singing about himself. Just imagine that. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Reflections on the Psalms, said this about the 19th Psalm. It is the greatest poem in the Psalter and one of the greatest lyrics in the world. In the world. That's heavy-duty um, words coming from the professor of English literature at Oxbridge University to say such a thing. Let me just go ahead and give you a quick thought and attention to the flow of this psalm. It falls into three natural uh, parts. This is not on the screen, but we have an invitation and an encouragement to look up, to look to the stars. We have the invitation to look down, to look into the scriptures. And then we have the invitation to look in, to look within our own hearts. So let's follow that outline. Let's look up with point number one, the revelation of God in his world. This is verses one through six, and we will read this in parts as we work through the outline. Verses one through six, follow along in your Bibles. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them. And there is nothing hidden 
from its heat. Now this is the word of the Lord. Let me point out some things about these first six verses. Are they not magnificent in the way they are written? Such poetry, such great truth, such majesty. Understand, point number one under this, this is David and the creator God. This is how David perceives God in his creation. By observing the universe, by observing the world around, the created world that God has given, this is David describing and talking about a creator God. This is God revealing himself through his works. And we call this natural or general revelation. Why would we call these words natural or general revelation? Well, it's the natural world that we're seeing. And it's general, a revelation of God, because it is revealed to everyone on the face of this earth since since the beginning of the world and will be to the end of the world. This is revelation, not specific, to a certain group of people. This is revelation to everyone. Creation is God's witness to himself, to every person in the world. Now, I know <clears throat> you don't care for a, maybe a language lesson here, but it is, it's rather pertinent to this psalm. The name for God in verse 1 The name for God being described by his creation in the first six verses of this psalm, Psalm 19, is the name El, El, E-L. The plural of that is Elohim. For instance, in Genesis 1, where the Bible says that God said, let us, the name for God there is Elohim, meaning the, the, the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. Here the term is El, and he's going to use a different word for God later in this psalm, but here he is referring the significance of the name El. He is describing the all-powerful, the all-powerful but not necessarily personal God of the universe. The ultimate authority and power who is out there somewhere. The great God who, whose name literally means power and might. He is a God to whom all of our worship and reverence is due. He's not the personal God who comes to us through his spirit. This is the God of creation, the magnificent, powerful, uh, omnipotent God of the universe. Now, folks, this is why you've heard me say, and I've encouraged you as God's children, that God has taught us to address him as Father. When Jesus gave instructions of how to pray, he said, pray like this, our Father which art in heaven. Now here is why I would 
encourage you to make that a discipline of your life and not to begin your prayers to God. Now, it's not inaccurate to refer to God in your prayers, but understand every human being in the world can call out to God in prayer by the name God. Why? Because God is the God of everybody. But he's not the father, the personal father of everybody, but the father to only those who are his children. And how much more personal and how much more recognition and how much more intimacy and, um, and closeness and relationship do we have with God when we can call him, and it be accurate, our Father who art in heaven. Now, that's just a bit of a personal pet peeve to me. The Bible doesn't say that specifically other than Jesus taught us to pray our Father. But I think I'm right. Now, now follow me here. This is very important. Very important. And this is some application of God being uh, our Father, of us recognizing and respecting and giving reverence to the creator God of the universe. I'm going to tell you, if you do not embrace the creator God, then you do not and cannot embrace and be saved by the Christ who is God. It's necessary to understand and embrace the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis that tells us about how we came to be, that tells us how we fell into sin, that tells us how God promised a Savior. We can't compromise on that. And the world will never receive the true Savior until they receive the Creator God of the universe. When Paul begins to write the great book of Romans, and it's one of the greatest sections of Scripture that there is that explains justification, salvation by faith alone, okay? Romans is the greatest treatise on conversion and on justification to be found in all the Bible. He begins in chapter 1, and he gets about halfway through chapter 1, and he, he says this. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, also to the Greek, for in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, beginning in faith and ending in faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And then he goes into a very serious line of thought. It's about three or four paragraphs long in Romans 1. But this is what he has to say. It's a little bit of a lengthy reading. Please listen closely to me. For the wrath of God, the anger, the punishment, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men 
who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Hear those words. God's wrath is poured out from heaven against all unrighteousness and unrighteous people who suppress the truth. What does it mean to suppress the truth? To suppress is to push it down, to press it in, or to push it away. It is to not receive it. It is to reject the truth. And so in what way is he talking about people suppressing, rejecting the truth? He continues, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For what can be known by God is plain to them. He's talking about every person in the world. Even those who have not yet owned, possessed, or read, or studied the Bible. He's talking about general revelation. He's talking about the revelation of nature. He's talking about the revelation of God's universe. He's talking about the, the great truth that nobody, nobody, nobody can look to the heavens, can look to the world around them, and accurately have any reason to say, this just happened. This just happened. This just evolved. This just came to be. There was no creator. There was no prime mover. There was never an originator. There was never an author of this. This just came to be. Nobody can look at the heavens and say that in all honesty. I say to you, according to this verse, there is no such thing as a true atheist. The only way a person becomes an identifiable atheist is that they suppress the truth of what is obvious, what anybody can see, what anybody can observe. He says, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Now listen, he goes even further. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, these have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. And they are perceived in the things that have been made through nature through the created universe, the created world. The attributes of God, namely his eternal power and divine nature, these things are clearly perceived. So, they are without excuse. They are without excuse. No human being can say, well, I didn't know about God. Nobody ever told me. They are without excuse. They've got the witness of and the revelation 
of the created world, the works of God. That's what David was talking about in these first six verses. And it goes on to say in Romans, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. In other words, rather than worshiping the creator, they began to worship the creation, what was uh, created. Now, Paul is describing a willful rejection of God in the face of obvious truth revealed in the universe and the world around us. He's talking about general revelation being rejected. He's talking about what David talked about in Psalm 19. But rather than acknowledge and worship the creator of God, they worship the creation instead. Now listen closely. Listen closely. There's a distinction that needs to be made. I love God's creation, don't you? I dearly love it. Sometimes I need to just get in my truck and drive out into the country. Some of you are the same way. If it were not for his superior sense of navigation, Miss Linda would get Brother Garland lost out in the woods somewhere driving around. I love to go places and see parts of the country. I, there's places in the world I would love to see if I just had the money to travel. How about you? And I've seen some amazing things, and so have you. Don't you love it in the fall of the year when the maple trees turn absolutely red? Does it not just make your mouth water to think about biting into a ripe, juicy peach right now? Sometimes are there not pieces of music that just stir your heart. The world around us. My father was uh, an amateur astronomer. And he used to, we would go outside and at night, he would spend so much time outside just looking up. Just looking up. I never had the interest then that I have now and I wish I had. He would say, son, you see that star up there? That's Arcturus. Any season of the year as the earth tilted and as it moved from season to season and what could be seen in the night sky changed, he knew he could name just about any star in any season, any constellation, any planet. He knew right where it was, always. Does it not amaze you sometimes when, when maybe on your computer screen or a TV screen you, you see pictures of deep, deep space that we could never see maybe just a few years ago, but because of the telescopes up in the universe itself, it shows 
things to us and you see a far, far away sky, millions of light years away and you see these things that look like stars but they explain to you those aren't stars. Those are entire galaxies of stars. There's no word for that. There's no word for that. But there are people who see all of that as just something that, that happened randomly. And they worship that. And, and those understand, understand, when we worship creation, that's pantheism. And you need to understand this. God is everywhere. You cannot go anywhere away from his presence. That is an attribute of God, his omnipresence. But understand, God is everywhere, but God is not in everything. God is not in that mountain. God is not in that tree. God is not in that rock. That's not God. Wherever you go, he will be there. But he is not in those things so that you would be right in worshiping those things. That's pantheism. And understand this. Pantheism is the supposition behind many cults and false religions. For instance, Hinduism and to a degree Buddhism. Those are pantheistic religions that teach you to worship things and people, the dead and others. The various unity and unification cults and even those that worship or get enamored with, quote, mother nature. That is idolatry. There is no such person as mother nature worshipers. Now you understand and need to understand, this comes right down to where we live when we have the driving force behind radical environmentalism today. The, the whole idea behind that is pantheistic. That we have to worship creation. Radical environmentalists. Those who get all caught up to a radical uh, place with global warming. As well as those, listen to me, who advocate abortion, euthanasia, and radical animal rights. This is all has its roots in pantheism. We need a whole month for this psalm. Paul goes on in the next three paragraphs in Romans 1 that I did not read to say that these people who willingly suppressed the truth and turned the creation into what they worship, God gave these people over to their sinfulness. He says that three times. God gave them over. God gave them over. God gave them over. Listen to me. You don't want God to give you over. You need to pray every day, God, hang on to me. Don't let me be misled by the world's truth, the world's thoughts. And he talked about the giving over. He descriptively talked about the evil of homosexuality. He talked about many other evil attitudes and activities of humanity, that all these are the expression of God giving people over. 
to sinfulness. All right, we must hurry. Listen fast. First of all, we've been invited to look up, to see the revelation of God in his creation. He is a creator God. You need to understand that is the great L. That's God that you must never overlook. Now look down. The revelation of God in his word. Verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and, altogether, and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. This too is the word of the Lord. Now this is David, and he's not talking now about the creator God. This is David and the covenant God. The covenant God. The God who is personal. The God who reaches down to man from his lofty place. The God who even came down to man and gave himself. This is the God who throughout the uh, scriptures, Old Testament and New, who is making a covenant with his people. Who is making promises to them and calling to them to be devoted to to him, This is David and the covenant God. This is God revealing himself how? Not through his world, not through the universe. This is God revealing himself through his word. The word of God, what we know as the Bible. We don't call this general revelation. That's a revelation to everybody in the world who can just look up or look around and see creation. This is special revelation. This is God inspiring his truths to be written down so that we could hold them in our hands and read them. This is special revelation. Now David changes direction beginning in verse 7 and the shift seems abrupt. He goes from talking about the creation of God in verse uh, 6 and how the son comes out like a bridegroom on the day of his wedding, leaving his chamber, like a strong man running a race. He's speaking so poetic. And then all of a sudden he says, the law of the Lord is perfect. It's an abrupt break and change of direction. Through creation, he speaks to the whole world. Through his word, he speaks to his covenant people, those who will receive his truth, both general and specific, and to do so in faith, as Paul said in Romans 1. Now notice the five different words he gives for the Bible, for the word of God. Verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. Now, listen now. What law of God 
What Bible did David have in his day? Have you ever thought about that? What Bible did he have? He had what we know as the Pentateuch, or what the Jews refer to as the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. Now, we like a lot of the narrative and the stories and how all of that progressed and Abraham and his journeys and uh, Isaac and Jacob. But boy, when it gets into the law part of it, you know, over in Exodus and then Numbers and Deuteronomy and those verses, it kind of bogs down for you and me, all these specific laws. But what does he say? The law of the Lord is perfect. That means it's blameless. It's blameless. It revives the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure. It makes wise the simple. Do you ever need wisdom? I'm pretty simple-minded. I need wisdom. It's the testimony of the Lord that brings that to me and to you. The precepts of the Lord are right. They rejoice the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure. It enlightens the eyes. The fear, that means reverence, respect, awe, and submission to the Lord is clean and it endures forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. And compare, uh, speaking of this law, this testimony, this, this law, this precepts, these commandments, these rules, they are more to be desired than gold. They are more precious even than fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned. And in keeping them, there is great reward. I read those words and it convicts me so deeply of what I think is important enough to invest my time in. I mean, I could get sidetracked here talking about the time we spend in front of a TV, the time we spend in reading other things that entertain us. And we're all guilty of that stuff. But there's so many other things. But what is there in the world? What is there in the world that is more precious than gold to you? Than financial security? Than your career? Your career is not gold. The money you make is not precious gold. Whatever you can accumulate in life is not like gold. All of that stuff passes away. Why do we find something so much more dear and precious to us than the truth of God? Sweet. Sweeter than the drippings of a honeycomb. What else are you promised that you can invest your time and energies and affection to that God says is going to earn you eternal rewards? 
eternal rewards. What are you in need of today? What is it that you really need today? Wisdom? God's Word offers that. Encouragement? Something to rejoice your heart? God's Word does that. Do you need direction and insight for a life decision and you don't know what you need to do? God's Word will enlighten your eyes. God's Word is enduring, totally righteous, more to be desired than fine gold, sweeter than honey from the honeycomb. It gives warning and brings great reward to you. Now, in the first six verses, the name for God was El. But in these verses, 7 through 11, he shifts gears. And this name for God is Yahweh. Yahweh, the covenant God who reveals himself and seeks relationship with human beings. How do we know that God? We know that God through his word. Through his word. Yahweh is not distant, nor is he silent. He is present. He is accessible. He is near to those who call on him for deliverance, forgiveness, and guidance. He reveals himself to us through his perfect word, and he promises, I will never leave you nor forsake you. You see that creation teaches us there is a God but it does not explain to us a Savior. We have this God, Yahweh, who has come to earth, who's given to us the Word of God that reveals the plan of salvation, that reveals the story of man, that tells us what we need to know from start to finish, beginning in faith and ending in faith. And it's so interesting to me that even in 1561, hundreds of years ago, the Belgic Confession, the Belgic Confession, written in 1561, stated in Article 2 that we can know God, we can know God by two means. It says this, we know God by two means. First, by the creation, preservation, and government of the universe. Since that universe is before our eyes like a beautiful book, now listen to this, in which all creatures, great and small, are as letters to make us ponder the invisible things of God. God's eternal power and divinity, as the Apostle Paul says in Romans 1.20, all these things are enough to convict humans and to leave them without an excuse. But God can be known in a second way. God makes himself known to us more clearly by his holy and divine word, as much as we need in this life for God's glory and for our salvation. That confession based point number two, how we know God on Psalm 19 through the creative work of God, and through the specific Word of God. Let me draw this to a close, and point number three will be our conclusion. Verses 12 through 14. 
This is the revelation of God in his worshiper. That's you and me. Who can discern his errors? This is verse 12. Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. And let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Notice this is what David the worshiper says. In light of what God has just revealed to him about the creation of the universe and the word of God specifically. Now it turns to mankind. Who can discern his errors? I want to say to you that you can't discern your own errors and neither can I apart from the word. If God had not given us his moral law, if God had not given us his truth, if there were no laws, there would be no lawbreakers. Who could discern their own errors? And then he says, declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. He said, Lord, there are two kinds of sin in my life. There are hidden faults. There are those things that I do that I don't even recognize that I'm guilty of doing. I sin against you every day in ways that I'm not even fully aware of. Things I neglect, things I overlook, things I do, but I never think about the results of those things. He said, Father, I have hidden faults. I need you to reveal those to me, and I need you to forgive me of those things. And friends, that ought to be your prayer every single day. Father, help me know what I do not know, for in that are some of my greatest sins. But not only hidden faults, keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. We're guilty of those also. We know what's right, but we can presume we can get along by not doing what is right. We presume we'll be okay uh, in this neglect or in this particular act. There are things we know to be wrong, but we still presumptuously, we go ahead and do it. And he says, Lord, let them not have dominion over me. He is begging every day that he too might be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Folks, that ought to be your prayer every day. Every Sunday when we offer this altar ought to be a motivation from that verse for you to be here praying like David prayed. And then he offers up his prayer. And this, to me, is perhaps one of the greatest verses in all of God's Word. Father, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. God reveals himself through nature, through the created universe, so much so that no human being anywhere in the world 
has an excuse before God. Nobody, nobody, even the most remote person in the world, no tribesman, nobody out there can ever rightfully stand before God and say, God, I didn't know you existed. God will say, I revealed myself to you every single day. But understand, the reason next Sunday we give an offering to missions is because people not only need that general revelation, they need the specific revelation of God's Word. They need the gospel to get to them. And you need to be a carrier of the gospel. You were saved by it. Why would you not want to share it with someone else? Why would you not want to help send people throughout the world? We need not only the world, we need the revelation of God in His Word in order to be saved. But understand that it all got down to this. It all got down to this. That God is not only revealed through the world, His creation, through the Word, the Bible, God is revealed through the worshiper. God is made known through David and his witness. He also seeks to be made known through you and your witness. Let the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart, be acceptable to you, O God, O Lord, covenant God. You are my rock. You are my redeemer. Father, I pray that the truth of this song, how David understood you and related to you and thought of you, that those would be our thoughts as well. And I pray that it would change our lives for the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Our heart's desire is that you grow and understand the direction God has for you in your life. We hope that by listening today, you are one step closer to discovering that for yourself. If you live in Northwest Arkansas and are looking for a church to call your own, we invite you to reach out to us at Calvary as we study and serve together. We meet for worship at 1030 on Sunday mornings at 1410 North Porter Road in Fayetteville, Arkansas. If you wish to find out more information about Calvary Church or simply contact us, you can do that through our Facebook page or at calvaryfayetteville.com. Until next time, remember that God, His Word, and His people can provide direction for life.